This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Lionshare hosted a track called The Holy Spirit and Transformation. In fact, that's where the recorded audio for today's episode came from. Dave Beering led this track for Lionshare's team, and he has written a great four-page summary of his core teaching on transformation. This PDF is called The Process of Transformation, and it's available for free through discipleship.org. Make sure to go online and download this free PDF at discipleship.org slash lionshare. That's lionshare, L-I-O-N-S-H-A-R-E, discipleship.org slash lionshare. And now for the track session. Well, I hate following Dave in a talk for any of you who were at the previous talk. And I'm the only non-pastor speaking in our track, so that's a little intimidating. I'm also used to speaking into a camera lens there, not to people. So that's also unusual for me. And um, uh, all of this is, is unusual. So I'm not going to be like a pastor who can just speak off the cuff in a, in a beautiful way like you saw at some of the presentations today. I'm a little bit more note heavy. However, because we're going toward the end of the day, I'm going to use humor and self-deprecation as my way to keep you all interested. Um, So hopefully out of all the tracks you guys go to, um, all the sessions, this will be the one in which the person um, humiliated themselves the greatest and thus will be uh, most Jesus-like. Thank you. Well, in this increasingly polarized and sensitive uh, world, the idea of making disciples in the marketplace seems impossible, right? There are potential lawsuits, people jumping all over each other on social media, and a general uneasiness to engage in anything that might ruffle people's feathers. It used to be just religion and politics. Now it's even seeped over into football and the cause of hurricanes. One year after the most divisive elections in recent memory, do we realize that we are reaping what we have sown? We, as as the church, have contributed to this problem by not reproducing disciples who Jesus can raise up to serve society. We've acted as an interest group, advancing an agenda just like any other secular interest group, or kept ourselves out of the discussion whatsoever, hoping that it'll just blow over. If we are not deliberately obeying the command of Jesus to make disciples who make more disciples, then he has no Daniels, no Nehemiahs, no Esthers to place in leadership roles throughout society to represent him. As I start this talk, I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not giving it because I'm some great success at disciple making in the marketplace or because I'm putting myself up on some pedestal. I just want to share some things with you that I've observed. On April 2nd, I stood on top of a building just outside of St. Peter's Square with an amazing view of the Basilica of the Vatican, where thousands had gathered to pay their respects to the late John Paul II. 
It was the first day of the conclave where the College of Cardinals meets to, uh, in the Sistine Chapel to, discuss, to decide who will be the next pope. I got to explain the voting process to my American audience, including hard, how the cardinals say that the Holy Spirit guides them in their decision. Many of the other reporters were treating the conclave as pure politics, right? Who were the leading candidates? Would the next pope come from a Western country where Catholicism was waning or developing country where Catholicism was growing? And the internal power structure within the Vatican. I mentioned all those things, but I also got to talk about the Holy Spirit on national television and the words of past popes about Jesus and how he should determine the path of the church. Now, I had always understood that I am an ambassador for Christ wherever I am. But in that moment, sitting there with that view of the Vatican and on national television, I understood what it meant to see work as a form of worship. I was exactly where God wanted me to be. Now, do you remember that scene in the chariots of fire? Sorry, I need to move ahead. Oh, that's where I'm. In in that, I'm looking for, there's a little chimney there where you're looking for the white smoke or the black smoke that tells you whether or not they've picked the pope. So do you remember that scene in the chariots of fire where the music is playing? And the Olympic runner, Eric Liddell, says, I believe God made me for a purpose, and he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. That's how I felt when I executed a perfect live shot. For the sake of this talk, I want to clarify that when I say discipleship or making disciples, I don't mean just evangelism or conversion. To me, that's a prerequisite to becoming a disciple. Strategies for how best to witness to people in the marketplace, I believe that's a whole other talk. A disciple is someone who places himself or herself under another's tutelage to learn his way of life and to carry on his cause. In our case, Jesus. He called his disciples to become like him, correcting and encouraging them along the way, and then left, commanding them to disciple others to do the same. So a disciple is not merely someone who believes Jesus is real or is baptized or regularly attends church activities. Um, It is someone who is carrying on that cause, right? We all know the verse, Mark 8, 34 to 36. If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? So to grow as a disciple, we have to have have a willing and teachable heart, a radical commitment to obey Jesus, and the support of others who are further along in their walk with God. That person can continually point you to Jesus, the person whose expertise and experience that you can glean from. So who are the people in your life that you are discipling in your job as an ethical scientist, as a trustworthy real estate agent, as a compassionate government official um, who hopes um, and prays over their clients? Who are you discipling? 
Now, the secular world has already embraced this idea, right? It talks constantly about the need for mentoring. People need to find mentors in their field for reverse mentoring um, when the older person learns from the younger person. And they even bemoan the fact that we've lost that apprentice model that existed back in the Middle Ages or in rural society. Um, And so as a result, we've lost institutional memory and we're repeating the mistakes of history. For those of you who are sports fans, um, every weekend in the fall, sports commentators talk about coaching trees, right? How different coaches are connected to other coaches and developed their philosophies, styles, and ideas. This chart shows how in 1998, Half of the active head coaches in the NFL could be traced to Bill Walsh, go Stanford, and Tom Landry. I don't hear any Cowboys fans. (laughs) Of those 15 coaches, four had coached a Super Bowl winning team. Okay? You might ask, well, why are we even talking about making disciples in the marketplace? Why is this seminar even needed? Why not just focus on making disciples, period, since we seem to be having a hard enough time following that basic command? I mean, I think that's a legitimate point. But having worked in the marketplace, I do believe there is a strong argument that you will see fruit there because you're reaching people you might not reach otherwise. Plus, that is where we spend much of our time. So let's go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about work and how we need to teach Christians to think differently about it. In Genesis 1.28, after God created Adam and Eve, he said, yeah, he gave them jobs. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in numbers, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the first thing he did was give them jobs. Work is holy. It's his plan for humans. Drudgery, labor, and toil, that was part of the fall. Okay. Let's look at the characters of the Bible who we admire. Most of them were not on church staffs. Abraham was a businessman. Daniel was a government advisor. David was a shepherd. Ruth was a caregiver and gleaner. Lydia was a CEO and also in charge of sales and marketing for her purple cloth. Jesus launched the church through fishermen and tax collectors. At the root of the English word vocation is the Latin word vocatio, which means calling. And Martin Luther, who we are celebrating this year, believed that having a vocation is more than simply an occupation. It encompasses the whole life of the follower of Jesus, and it's not limited to his or her job, career, trade, or profession. He believed vocation was a calling for followers of Jesus to contribute to the world and to serve those around them. This is a quote from him. The idea that service to God should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like is without doubt, but the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in a church and by the works done therein? The whole world Um, should abound with the services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchens, workshops, and fields. So to Luther, God himself is milking the cows through the work of the milkmaid. Let's take that one step further. Not only is work the work of God, 
But the work of ministry is the work of those of us who are out in the world. Ephesians 2.12. There we go. You can tell I'm not a PowerPoint person. In Ephesians 4.11 through 12 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Bottom line, those of us in the marketplace are called to do the work. Pastors and teachers should be equipping us to do the work. In 2011, the Barna Group found that 84% of Christians ages 18 to 29 acknowledged that they had no idea how the Bible applies to their field or personal interests. Let me say that again. 84% had no idea how the Bible applied. We at Lionshare have framed this as the need to disciple in the dozen domains. And here's the history. In the summer of 1975, uh, Lauren Cunningham, who Dave talked about in the last uh, session, who's the founder of Youth with a Mission, was in Colorado, and God had been impressing on him a new thought, that the nations could be reached by impacting believers' various spheres of influence. They got a call from Bill and Vonette Bright, who were the founders of Campus Crusade, and they had a meal together, and it turns out that the Brights had also been having that same kind of impression from the Lord. And later, Darlene Cunningham heard Dr. Francis Schaefer kind of talking about that same issue. And so they realized that something was going on. And so YWAM started teaching about the seven spheres of influence, which were originally family, church, government, education, media, arts and entertainment, and business. So Lionshare's founder, Dave Buring, he was one of those students. And he began to pray over these areas of influence, and it's given him kind of a a framework to look at the world, to look at people, and to view vocations through the lens of disciple-making. Now, we at Lionshare have expanded that to that seven to a dozen, and so we've added science and technology, health, medicine, wholeness, environment, agriculture, zoology, nonprofits and service organizations, and people groups. Um, people, groups whose lives and communities revolve around shared affinities, geography, and common culture. So, for example, um, we've been approached by um, African-American pastors who've told us there is a real strong need for discipleship among African-American men. And so we feel like that should be a domain in and of itself. So how do we define domain? It's a unique sphere of influence where God gives us position with skills, natural abilities, and spiritual gifts to steward our time and energy for God's glory. So what does all this have to do with us? Well, let me share a little bit of my personal story, and I think that'll help you um, understand where I'm coming from. My mom is a petite but fiery Korean woman. My dad is a big old white guy from Michigan. They met at Bible College and went to South Korea as missionaries in 1970. So I am a double whammy MK PK. Uh, When finances got tough, because churches and individuals were not consistent in in their financial giving, my parents embraced that Priscilla and Aquila tent-making model and both went out and got their own jobs. So they continued to um, pastor a church on the weekends, but we would have Wednesday night prayer meeting at our house, sometimes Friday night Bible studies. And um, my mom ran an extremely successful executive search firm 
but she never saw herself as a businesswoman. My dad worked as an English editor at a law firm, but he was always known as Moksanim, pastor, right? In their mind, even though that was what they did full time to earn money, those were just their side hustles, right? Their, their main job was serving the Lord in ministry. Those things enabled them to do this. So I feel like that's been part of my DNA from the beginning. Uh, when I got to Stanford University, um, I experienced Christian fellowship with a peer group for the first time in my life. My Campus Crusade for Christ group brought me community. Its leaders taught me about discipleship and apologetics, how to answer tough questions about my faith. It was really great training for me. Um, but when I decided to graduate and I decided not to join full-time staff, they didn't really know what to do with me because I was no longer going to be in that college environment. I was moving cities, and I wasn't joining staff. So I got a letter like, hey, would you support us? <laughs> right? But that, that, was, that was kind of the extent of the, the, the relationship. And my local church, I was also moving cities. And so that relationship kind of ended. So I landed in Los Angeles where I began to work. In Los Angeles, I worked for nine years in broadcast journalism, in public radio, behind the scenes at Dateline, Network News Magazine, and in front of the camera in the second largest uh, TV market in the country. I sacrificed a lot personally for all that. I worked swing shifts, graveyard shifts, weekends. I had a hard time connecting with anyone at church because everyone I met seemed to be, I don't know, actors, screenwriter wannabes. They just, we weren't working the same schedules. Uh, their small groups and their activities never lined up with my availability because of the, the crazy hours I was working. I really longed for a mentor and one of the churches I tried had a mentor program. I applied. I got matched with a woman who was the choir director's wife. She'd never worked outside the home. She missed a lot of our appointments because she had migraines. It just, it, just, it just wasn't working. And I continued to drift. I, I could not go to church on Sunday and nobody would say anything, right? Only That was just, only God knew. It was... Um, but I, I, I never really lost my faith. It just, it just wasn't active at that time. I was more influenced by boyfriends or non-Christians who were either nominal in their beliefs or, you know, outright non-believers. And I just continued to go to church less and less often. And then I got the call to move to Washington, D.C. to work for ABC News. I'd hit the big time. I was going to the network. I felt sure that this is exactly where God wanted me to be and that he had opened these doors and had led me here for some great purpose. I looked at it as a reset for myself spiritually. After all that backsliding I'd done in Los Angeles, D.C. is a serious town. You know, I'm not going to be surrounded by all these entertainment types. You know, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. So I moved to D.C. And I am a big believer that, and, and I continue to be, that you're supposed to be salt and light wherever you go. 
But after a year of hard work, I wasn't making progress, not in the way that I thought I should, not in the way that I had leading up to that point, right? So here during all that time when I was supposedly backsliding, I was making incredible progress from a professional standpoint, right? At the age of you know, 30, I was anchoring a major news broadcast in the second largest market in the country. So then I get to the network and I'm treated like, I don't know, yesterday's fish. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Here I am really trying to follow the Lord and all of a sudden now I'm fallen out of favor. All my usual diligence isn't making much difference like it had in the past. I prayed, I cried out to God, I went to Iraq. For the first time in my life, I cried for favor. I longed for a discipler, a mentor, somebody who understood what working at this level of journalism was like, what the pressure was like. I reached out to a few people that I had heard who had worked at the network. I remember scouring magazines, you know, Christian magazines, looking for anybody who'd worked in my field. You know, I'd email them or write them a letter, and I was either rebuffed or I found some people who were more junior to me, but they didn't really understand what I was going through. Or I felt like I was more advanced than them, both professionally and spiritually. So it just didn't, it just didn't make sense. I did have one friend at work that I could have leaned on more. We were both believers, but she was in the same position as me. And to a certain extent, we were in competition with each other. So we would complain to each other a lot. But looking back now, I realize that we probably should have been more, we, we, we should have been more formal in our time with each other. We should have prayed together. We should have, you know, I should have said to her, you know what, I only have you and you only have me. This may not be the ideal situation, but let's do something about it. I kept waiting for the perfect mentor to kind of, you know, come down from heaven. I remember my pastor's wife, who coincidentally is a disciple of Dave Buring, so we can call that a, we can call that a, a three generations deep uh, thing. But she said to me, you are not waiting on your bosses at ABC, as I waited for that promotion that I was working so hard for. She said, you are waiting on God. And those words stuck with me. They completely changed my perspective. It's truly biblical advice that I've given to others as they find themselves in that same situation. Now, I'm sure that sounds pretty elementary to you guys, but that concept of waiting on God and hearing the voice of God was not a practice that I was too familiar with. In the tradition I'd been brought up in, that that just sounded kind of foreign. In fact, Dave is going to be talking a little bit about hearing the voice of God tomorrow in a session that we have here tomorrow. Um, It's our second session tomorrow, and we're doing a live demonstration for you, and we're going to also be talking about that. So if that's something that you're interested in, um, you can come back tomorrow to hear more about that. So I'm just going to depart a little bit from my story and talk a little bit about what can the church do for someone like me. Most churches have graduation Sundays, right, where we bring the, bring the high school students out and we talk about what colleges they're going to and we, we all stand up and applaud them. 
Maybe we even commission them as they're going off to college. We have our people who are going off on mission trips. We bring them out. We commission them, you know, as they're going off to Haiti or Ecuador or, you know, to their inner city project. Have you ever invited your college graduates back to your church and commissioned them as they're going out into the medical field or into the field of government or into the field of science? That's one thing I would suggest that you do. Invite them back to speak to your youth groups. Get them connected back to your church and commission them and so that they understand that they are going into a mission field as well. Another suggestion, connect them with somebody at your church, a seasoned believer preferably in the field in which they're going to be working. This is so much easier to do now with technology, right? Because even if they're moving to a different city, they can talk on Skype or on FaceTime. They don't have to necessarily be in the same place. Um, If you know somebody in that other city, fantastic. Maybe somebody you met at this forum who could, you know, connect them into a local church. Great. But there's no reason why you can't connect them with somebody at your church, especially if it's somebody in their field. And I would encourage you to have them use a discipleship tool. So it's not just a phone call of, hey, how are you doing? And then you spend 30 minutes complaining and commiserating about, you know, how awful work is or how you're not making enough money or, you know, they feel like somebody's just checking in on them to see if they've gone to church, right? Using a discipleship tool will enable them to learn, will also enable them to develop relationship with that person. Uh, we recommend that, um, that you, you use a formational discipleship tool, but I would also recommend that in addition to that, think about some things that, would be relevant to that field, right? So um, my husband worked in politics for more than 20 years. He would have a great, great suggestions on maybe some biographies of people to read who are very, very vulnerable and honest about what working in that field is like as a Christian. Um, This is actually an idea that you can use right now in your church. Uh, And I'm just going to take a a slight, slight, like a diversion here um, and tell you that, let, let me stop for a second and just say that the goal here is life application, right? How are you going to use what God has revealed to you in your life this week? And how can you be praying for each other? So this advice is not limited to just college graduates. You can be using it in your church even now. I would argue that one of the most underserved people groups in your church are working moms. Okay? Working moms cannot make it to a 9.30 in the morning, Tuesday morning Bible study at your church. And most of them can't make it to a Wednesday night at 7 p.m., Bible study at your church either. Why? Well, they're working during the day, and at night, they're carting around their kids to, you know, this activity, this sport, this thing. They're helping with homework. They're doing dinner. They're packing lunches. 
you know, that sort of thing. Am I making this up? No. The statistics bear it out. In the book Wonder Women, Navigating the Challenges of Motherhood, Career, and Identity, Kate Harris writes, for moms who admit they are struggling to balance work, family, and personal priorities, a startling 42% say faith communities do not offer them any emotional or social support at all. 42%. Here's another one. Self-identified Christian women, nearly half, 46%, say the church only offers them some support, and 34% admit to not receiving much or any support from their church. Yet the number one area American women name where they can improve in their commitments is church. 22% say they'd like to be more involved in a community of faith. Wow. So if you have a young woman going off... (laughs) into the work world, and then you combine that with this, these statistics, right? You know where, what, where we're going. So why can't, why can't we start in our churches right now a discipleship group for working moms that meets via video conference at 9 o'clock at night after the kids have been put to bed? I'm doing one right now with a working mom of three, and another mom who has five kids. I'm doing, a, I'm doing one with um, moms, a mom who has a newborn, another one, a mom who works from home in the afternoons at 1.30 during nap time. We can use technology to help us and to reach some of these people who can't be reached otherwise. They want to be in relationship. They want to, to be a part of community but it doesn't have to look the way that it looked before. You guys understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, Okay, what's another reason we should do this? More effective discipleship. You will see more effective discipleship than if the church pastor did it himself, and your church membership and attendees will be more engaged because they're using their knowledge and experiences to help someone with the challenges and spiritual strongholds of working in this field. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Maybe a few of them will resonate with you or somebody you know. I mentioned my husband. He worked in politics and government for more than two decades. He has plenty of examples of gray areas he's had to navigate as a believer when making decisions that were hidden or on display. His field is also littered with divorces, affairs, and sexual misconduct. I know of Christian academics that keep their faith under wraps because they don't want to be dismissed as religious fanatics. How do you walk that line? Christian doctors and nurses often face ethical dilemmas that their medical training doesn't prepare them for. How are you going to mentor that person? Wouldn't it be better if another Christian person who knows something about medicine would be, would be discipling that person? A Christian actor who works in an environment where at least half of the staff are gay. A Christian working on environmental issues who's constantly being put in the position of defending what pastors or Christian politicians on the news say about climate change. 
A Christian woman in the business world who is sexually harassed or constantly deals with inappropriate comments the way we've been hearing in the news. When should she speak up? To whom? And when should she leave? How to speak about death when you are the medical examiner or forensic scientist on a case and you end up becoming the default minister to the bereaved? How to do your job as a law enforcement officer with integrity and compassion in the midst of racial tensions? How to lay off people with honor when you've started a business that needs to close down or make deep cuts? So here's some things I wish I would have known that if I was discipling, you know, 22-year-old me, (laughs) these are some of the things I, I would have said. And I'm gleaning some of this from our discipleship tool, A Discipleship Journey, and some of this from Beth Moore's study on the book of Daniel. Going into the work world is like going into Babylon. You need resolve, the right mindset, You need accountability. I needed to have more of the mentality of Daniel and his friends. They knew they were captives and set apart. I knew that. I thought I was prepared, maybe a little too much. There was some pride there. The mentality in Babylon is, I am and there is none besides me. Isaiah 47, 8 and 10. I am and there is none besides me. The first rule is self-promote, self-promote, self-promote. Make a name for yourself, make a name for yourself. I had a colleague who actually went out and hired a publicist. Remember, we're reporters, not actors, okay? She went out and hired a publicist to get herself put in magazines, like walking red carpets and things like that. And I thought that was silly. I can't tell you who she is. But I can tell you, she's in a very, very good position now. So it worked. I was the dumb one. She was the right one from that perspective. Um, Appearance, perceived intelligence, socioeconomic status, rule. All this breeds insecurity and image building. So in the midst of my difficult time at ABC, I am not joking, I had a conversation with, uh, with one of my bosses, and I was talking about, you know, I've done all this work, I've done, you know, all this extra shifts, I've, you know, done all these things, I don't understand why, you know, I'm not progressing. And I actually had an executive say to me, the problem is your wardrobe. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And they said, well, you wear too much Ann Taylor. And I was like... Well, isn't Ann Taylor good? Like, it seems like that's very respectable clothing. And she said, no, you wear too much Ann Taylor and not enough Tahari. And you can't buy Ann Taylor from D.C. It has to be New York Ann Taylor if you were going to buy it because it's different. So we're going to fly you up and you're going to buy some clothes at Neiman Marcus in New York. Not with their money with my money. I was floored. Another time I had this conversation, I was told it was because I had the wrong hair cut. So this is the fun part of the presentation. (laughs) I had to dig these up. 
All right, so when I was working in Los Angeles, that's what my hair looked like. Looked like. That was in, um, 19, at the end of 1999. Do I look cute, sweet? <laughs> Come on, give me some affirmation. <laughs> okay, so my first, this is like around like my first month at ABC News, right? Still looks pretty much the same. I look, I look good. This is what they hired, okay? This is what they hired. Okay, this is the, the first haircut. They wanted it to be shorter. And then they wanted it to be even more. I did everything they asked me to do. Clothing-wise, I worked with a voice coach. I, I did my hair the way they wanted me to. And in the end, they told me that um, I wasn't progressing because I wasn't a good writer. And I thought, this is just crazy. Because I'm exactly the same, if not better, writer than I was that you hired four years ago. So at this point, I know that it's not true anymore, right? But that's what, what people try to do. They go after your insecurities. Um, currying favor by self-promotion with your bosses. I had a colleague who invited every single network executive to her wedding, which was covered like a celebrity event. And again blown away. She made the right call because it helped. Perceived intelligence is king. Um, our office was littered with emails of everybody replying all and then writing a basically a term paper to show other people how much they knew on a particular topic. Connections. If I just had this connection, I would get ahead. I was constantly being told that. If you just knew this person, that would help. Or you'd sit there and you'd wonder, why is that person getting ahead? And then you'd realize, oh, it's because, you know, and you'd figure out the connections. What was my part in all of it? Well, as I told you before, I was more David than Daniel. I didn't have resolve. I did not keep myself from the so-called rich food in Daniel's story. I committed active sin. I allowed some of the untreated weaknesses in my life that were not dealt with to be an invitation for the enemy to take foothold, right? And these things tempted me to blend in. I tried to live up to Babylon's values. I was seduced by its manual on how to get ahead. At any of those points, I could have said, no, I'm not going to cut my hair. I look perfectly fine. This is what you hired. Like, I think I'm fine. We all know that a high regard for the things of this world always signals a lowering regard for God. One thing I didn't know was about ongoing spiritual warfare. Nobody had really talked to me about that before I entered the work world. It wasn't talked very much about in my church. My parents didn't really talk about it. I joined a prayer group for Christians in the media in DC and most were not out in their workplace because they were afraid how it would affect their careers. People look down on religion. You're a person of faith, I was told, so you probably won't be assigned to cover the embryonic stem cell story. Well, that's strange because the person you just assigned to cover that story, that person's wife works for Planned Parenthood, 
why, why can't, you know what I mean, right? There were lots of twists of spiritual terminology in the workplace. So I would hear things like, oh, that person got that job or got that, that assignment because they're anointed. Hmm, that's interesting terminology. Another thing I would have taught myself, don't get stuck in the trap of self-absorption. I kept asking myself, why are others advancing ahead of me when I'm doing everything right? You know, Psalm 37 was my psalm, man. I just went back to that one over and over again. Why did God put me here if he didn't want me to succeed? I am being treated unfairly and there is no one as unjustly treated as me. I mean, that is self-absorption. I would have told myself, know God's characters and his ways, God's character and his ways. If I had been studying scripture more, I would have seen that God often does this, right? In order to use me, God had to crush my pride, the temptation to take pride in my performance because I saw value in achievement. God's desire is neither to destroy nor condemn. It is to regrow us free of pride. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their ropes were flammable. So the only thing, only what bound them was consumed in the fire. Sometimes God allows us to go through things to destroy what binds us. God allows some thorns in the flesh to ensure intimacy, dependency, and humility. So when I think about the ways of God, um, I think about these verses. In Isaiah, it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That verse does not say, if you pass through the waters. If you walk through the fire. It says, when. So if I had been reading the scripture, I would have known this was going to happen at some point. The shoe was going to drop. Another verse from Mark 10, 43 through 44. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. I was probably never going to be first. Right? Not in that world. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. It's his timing. It's his timing. Now, my story doesn't move on to where you might think. After two more years of wrestling with my situation at ABC, I was married to a godly man and pregnant. Token family picture. We decided to leave D.C. and move to his home state of Minnesota, where both of our sons were born. And I never went back to full-time paid work. For nearly 10 years, I have been focusing on learning to be a disciple, discipling my sons, and caregiving for elderly parents. It is not what I would have imagined if you would have asked me 15 years ago this month when I left Los Angeles for D.C., 
Now, even though I feel I have a lot to offer women coming up behind me in the ranks of journalism and communication, interestingly, that is not where I have seen the greatest fruit. Surprisingly, for someone who grew up with guys as her best friends in high school and college, the time I have invested in women, specifically with mothers, has been very fruitful. So when I moved from the media domain to the family domain, I was actually asked to head up the mom's ministry at our church in Minnesota. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm, I am not a pampered chef party kind of lady, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't think you want me leading your mom's ministry. But I actually got a chance to put my administrative and leadership skills to use. And I found deep community in a way that I had never experienced before. And I learned from other moms who were at my stage and ones who were years ahead of me, the incredible value of what they could offer. And when, later, when I later moved back to the DC area as a mom, I had to forge a new path uh, in a place where I'd only been a worker bee. So now I was there as a mom. And after a couple of years of prayer and hard work, we finally were able to, to connect with some people and to find some new friendships and to experience that same kind of community and discipleship. And I learned that incredible value of passing on what God has taught me to others. So in the family domain, I have interacted with believers in a Moms in Prayer group, with non-believers in the PTO, um, with teachers in room parent committees, uh, with school administrators. I've learned about dealing with children, marriage, family dynamics, sick parents, finances, distance, forgiveness, boundaries, uh, friends as family, and God as our good, good father. Now our family has moved to Tennessee to work for Lion Share, so I guess I'm in the nonprofit domain. Though if all of our financial support doesn't come in in the next couple of months, I may have to move into <laughs> back into the media domain or the business domain. But I've been using my communication and strategic thinking skills again, and that has been very gratifying. Wherever I am, I am in the mission field, and I'm always on the lookout um, in my life for people where God wants, for people that God wants to use me with. I recently met my high school teacher, who happened to be in Nashville with his daughter, who just signed a contract um, with a modeling agency here. And I was able to talk to his daughter about that business because when I worked in Korea, I did some work in modeling and commercials. My husband wanted me to work some of the photos into this section of the talk since it's been a long one. So here you go. There's one. 1980s, you like the shoulder pads? That's very cute, Hershey Kisses. There's a hat that you would normally wear on the street. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, I shared some of this stuff with her about Babylon and the verses that I kept taped to my computer at work. I'm not quite sure if it all sunk in, but I'm sure that she, but I made sure that she knew I was available anytime she wanted to talk. And I also told her about other Christians in the industry um, that she wants to go into who might be willing to disciple her and told her how important it was going into that kind of industry that is so focused on appearance and it's so arbitrary that she needed to have that support. It's something that I wish somebody would have done for me. So back to my original questions. 
who is discipling you, number one. And number two, as you go, which is what the Great Commission says, as you go, who are you discipling in your sphere of influence? Dave talked in the last session about in whose ears are your words big as being one of the main ways for you to figure that out. And the first time he explained that to me, I didn't quite understand it. But then when you start looking out for it, it starts to become really clear. So I think it'll be the same for you. I want to end with two verses I kept taped to my computer at work, which I believe are great ones to memorize for those of you in the marketplace or for those of you to share with younger people going out into the marketplace. Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And from Colossians, whatever you do, work at it. Work at it with all your heart. It just brings back so many memories. As working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Dying to self. We talked about that in the main session. And I do think that that, when your coworkers see you and the way that you react under times of stress, the way that you handle yourself when you are being personally attacked, or when you're in a situation that's difficult, those are the things that scream Jesus. But personally, for me, knowing that my work was for him and not for them was what kept me going. Thank you. So I wish I would have met Sonia about 10 years earlier so I could have been with you in those times. Me too. So, but she's been doing some of that for others. I can't see you guys. Friendly. Yeah, we, um, we use Zoom. Okay. Um, and we found it to be really easy because you just send people a link and they can just, you know, click the link and it pops up on their phone or it pops up on their computer. And then if somebody's in a place where um, they don't have a lot of internet, so there's actually a phone option too, so they could just call in. Um, so that's worked really well compared to trying to figure out like multiple users on Skype or maybe somebody doesn't have Google so you can't do a Google Hangout or you know that sort of thing. So and only one person so for example the leader would have to pay for the you know the registration and nobody else would so you know everybody could chip in or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to mention, too, that we have a book here called Jesus Blueprint. Um, and it's, it kind of lays out kind of Dave's, whoop, Dave's um, a lot of the things Dave talked about in the last talk about Jesus' plan for discipleship. But the second half of the book is, uh, is the dozen domains. So 
there's a representative of each domain who has written an essay about that particular domain. Um, what are some of the spiritual strongholds? Why are God's ways needed in that? Um, and that might be encouraging for somebody you know who works in that domain to read a little bit about God's heart for it. Because I know some people might say, well, you know, I work in IT. Like, what does that have to do with God? Like, why do I have to be discipled specifically in that? Right? Or, you know, I'm an artist. Like, what's the big deal? Or how does, how does God, in, how is God involved in that? Um, and, and Dave goes into this more specifically, but, you know, God is the original artist, right? He's the master physician. He's the divine processor. All those jobs are, are find their root in him. So um, I just wanted to mention that as a resource as well. Jesus Blueprint. Yes. Uh, we have it downstairs at our table, and you can also order it online at lionshare.org. So we have a, a tool called a discipleship journey. And we have the teaching videos you can get through DVD or you can watch them online. A lot of people like to watch things on their own now where they can just watch it on their tablet or on their phone. And you sign up for it kind of on a, like a, a weekly, I'm sorry, a monthly or a six month subscription. So the teaching videos are there and then you would go through this together. And um, it's 48 weeks, and we find that it takes about a year to go through, you know, if you kind of skip for a holiday, (laughs) right, you know, for Christmas and Thanksgiving and things like that. It might be a little bit over a year. Um, But I have found that, for me, it's, it's it's a manual, right? So women that I have taken through, taken through this book, you know, they'll text me when they're going through something, right? And I'll say to them, okay, let's schedule a time to talk next week. But in the meantime, I want you to go back (laughs) to this chapter on um, submitting to authority. Because I know you're having a really, really tough time at work and you're thinking about quitting and you hate your job and that, that literally every single verse on submitting to authority is in that, on that page. So I want you to read through that and study those again, and then let's talk. We've already done this three years ago, right? But this is a, a way to go back and talk about it again and use that scriptural basis to talk about it. Um, you know, and I have a lot of young women that are struggling with being single, still being single, Right, and we go through that section on relationships again. So for me, it's an incredible resource to just, even for me, just to go back to and say, okay, I don't have to like sit there and figure out, okay, what are all the verses on this particular topic? They're there. All the verses on spiritual warfare are there. Um, And I, I feel like a lot of people go through what I call foundational discipleship material after they become a believer, like how to have a quiet time, you know, what does grace mean, that, that, kind of, that kind of stuff. But this next step of topics, like hearing the voice of God, spiritual warfare, you know, what does the Bible have to say about relationships? Those are things that I think a lot of believers don't always get. 
and to get it in this little bit more formalized way I think is really helpful. And then to look at it through the lens of, okay, how does this operate in my world as somebody who works in the media, right? I think it's, then you look at it a little bit differently. You know, it's interesting that you asked me that question because I just had this conversation with Darren when all this um, Me Too hashtag was coming out. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. The question was, um, in light of all of the recent revelations about uh, sexual harassment and, um, and even, you know, sexual violations that have happened in the workplace, especially among media and uh, political uh, figures, there was a huge revelation today, in fact, that happened just during our last session that came across my phone, which was alarmingly shocking. Um, I had this discussion, you know, what, what, how can Christian discipling help in, in, in those kinds of, uh, for, for people entering those fields? Um, I, I was having this conversation with my husband when the, when the Me Too debate or the Me Too hashtag started coming out on social media because I was, it, they were literally filling my Facebook and, um, and I thought to myself, you know, it's interesting. I had one experience with that in 1992 when I was covering the Barcelona Olympics and I was working um, for a Korean television station and a drunk producer kind of forced himself on me and I, you know, rebuffed him. And since that time, like after college, because that was when I was a junior in college, since that time, as an adult, post-college, and working in America, I've never had that happen to me. And that's actually stunning. <laughs> and my husband said to me, well, maybe it's because it is, you know, despite the fact that you guys just all saw me cry, um, he said, well, maybe it's just because you're kind of, you know, kind of tough and intimidating and, you know, carry yourself in a certain way. And, and you, people just know, like, you wouldn't take that from anybody and you would totally tell on them. And I said, well, yeah, maybe. And then I was like, yeah, I'm awesome. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and then I thought a little more about it, and I thought, you know, God protected me. Because one of the people who has a lot of these revelations has come out about is somebody that I worked one floor away from. And, um, and I did not have a lot of interactions with him, but I definitely was not, you know, in his favor. And I was older than most of the women that he had issues with. Um, but, but I always had a sense about him, just kind of this arrogance. And I think that I, I feel like the word fragrance kind of comes to mind, that I think that sometimes when you are a believer in the marketplace, that there is a fragrance that comes from you, that even if you're not out there standing on top of your desk yelling <laughs> with a sign, um, that, there, that there can be a sweet fragrance coming from you and that maybe that there can be some protection there. Um, I would hope that, you know, 
anybody who would go into those fields, especially in light of everything that has come up, you know, come to light now, would know that they have to talk about that stuff. But definitely having that, that we as the church should not be the way we as the church were 20, 30 years ago, telling people to, you know, telling wives not to, you know, talk about husbands who had, you know, hit them or, you know, that kind of stuff, that we as the church would protect the ones who are vulnerable. Um, so I, I do think that, that there's a, there's a val- there's kind of like a legal valid reason for there to be that kind of discipling and mentoring going on um, so that those people don't feel alone. Um, but but, it, but it, it's interesting that you asked me that question because it was something that I thought about when all this was happening in the news was like, why didn't that happen to me? Why didn't I have to deal with that? And it was like, oh, okay, thanks, God. Yeah. So I think the earlier you start, the better, right? Because you're pumped when you first, right? When you're first getting out of school, like you kind of want to do it right. And especially if you've been involved in something, um, it's kind of like when people first go off to college, the high school, you know, um, youth pastor and whatever wants to stay connected to them because you don't want them to just go off to college and then they just go off your radar, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen to them. So you want to maintain that relationship when they come home on breaks and, and that sort of thing. And I feel like it's the same thing as people go into the marketplace. That's why I was saying, like, get them when they're about to graduate, get them to come back and commission them and start pouring into them then. Because I do feel like there's an opening there to say, like, let's start it right. Yeah. You know? Um, because if you, if you get past that, then, you know, People are kind of like, oh, you know, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And then you kind of have missed a window. And then people start getting defensive. And then the the doors start closing, right? Um, I think there's always another door. There's always another window when things are not going well. And, And I think that's when parents can kind of give you a heads up. Um... Hopefully there's other people in the church who have poured into that person's life um, and because you don't obviously want it to be the parents. But I think that if, if, um, if I had been approached, you know, even in a non-confrontational way, like, right, not like that, but, hey, we want to you know, we want your help, we want to do this, you know, we want to, and, and make it kind of more inclusive and valuing what I was doing at that time, right, in terms of what I had achieved, but still wanting to, me to connect with people back at the church or younger people coming up behind me, you know, but as a way of including me and kind of putting their arm around me, I think that would have helped. Um, but honestly, for me at that time, finding somebody in my field would have meant a lot um, because there, there isn't a little bit of an arrogance there of saying, I don't think you guys understand because you don't know what it's like to be here, right? You're just a pharmacist. You don't know what, what this is like. Do you see what I'm saying? 
and it's youth. It's 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 the it's the sin of being young and dumb and and thinking you know more than other people, right? Um, does that help? Okay. And a friend of our, our organization, actually, one of the things they did at New Year's Eve last year was they did a special prayer service where they did almost like the twelve, like the Stations of the Cross, but they did the dozen domains, and they prayed through the domains, right? And they they prayed through you know each of the issues facing some of the domains. They prayed over specific names, right? Of 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 people in those domains so for example are you praying for the people who set health policy in this country right um are you praying for the president of cnn and the president of you know abc news are you praying for we, t- we talk about government leaders all the time but are you praying for the people who run the businesses and the wall street and you know things like that so, so they did that, which I thought was a fantastic idea to pray in a strategic way over those domains as well. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you heard was from LionShare's track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Make sure to download the free PDF called The Process of Transformation. Download this at discipleship.org slash lionshare. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.